This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. And this is the one and only Conspiracy Show. Congratulations, you have found us. My name, of course, is Richard Serrett. And thank you once again for your fine company. Uh, A very, very happy Thanksgiving, of course, first of all, to my listeners, family, friends, uh, and to my American listeners. Yes, we celebrate Thanksgiving in October up here in the Great White North. Uh, There is such a vast cultural chasm when it comes to Americans and Canadians. I mean, really. We celebrate our Thanksgiving in October. You celebrate yours in November. You buy your milk in plastic jugs. We buy our milk in plastic bags. However do we manage to get along? We are so different. Why, we're not in a constant state of war is beyond me. Ah, I say, would you care to journey to the center of the earth? Well, that's where we're headed over the next 40 minutes. Tim Swartz is standing by, an Emmy Award-winning television producer, and he's going to talk about the strange and mysterious expedition of Admiral Richard Byrd, who traveled to the Antarctica back in 1947, I believe, and returned with a very bizarre tale of traveling into an opening near the South Pole that led to an inner hollow earth inhabited by all sorts of strange creatures and advanced beings. So you'll want to keep it right here on The Conspiracy Show. In the meantime, Ian Robertson has returned from his worldwide tour with his rockabilly band, and he's back turning the knobs and dials and doodads. Uh, Albert Vinzel, I'm happy to report, is taking a much-deserved night off, enjoying his turkey. Uh, Actually, come to think of it, Albert is a vegetarian. So he'll be having uh, the imitation turkey, I guess, made from soybean or some such thing. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, anyway, wherever you are, Albert, happy Thanksgiving, and I hope you're enjoying your, your meal. Uh, a quick programming note or two before we get the festivities rolling here. Next week on the program, L.A. Marzuli, filmmaker and author of the Nephilim Trilogy and producer of the Watchers series, L.A. Marzulli. He'll be on the program. Of course, L.A. will be in Toronto for a Strange Planet production presentation on Wednesday, November the 4th at the University of Toronto, along with Carl Gallops, uh, the author of Final Warning, and uh, the two of them take the stage as part of As in the Days of Noah, The Return of the Nephilim, Giants, the Alien Abduction Phenomenon, and Understanding the Trumpet Days of Revelation. As in the Days of Noah, L.A. Marzulli, Carl Gallops, Wednesday, November the 4th at Oise, the University of Toronto. And uh, for more details or to order tickets, just go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and click on the live events page, and you're in. All right. Uh, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, the television program, season four coming soon to Vision TV. 
We'll have an announcement on an exact air date, rest assured, but it is on the way. We are delivering episodes as we speak. Uh, now, incidentally, seasons one and two, the complete episodes, are now available to rent or buy in HD at Amazon.com. Uh, and uh, we recently sold the show to Thailand, of all places. So there you go. Um, but one of my favorite episodes, actually, from season two was Journey to the Center of the Earth. And I went down to Mississippi, interviewed this uh, gentleman, uh, an entrepreneur, and kind of a real-life Indiana Jones. And I'm struggling to remember his name right now. Uh, uh, Brooks, someone. Ah, it's killing me. Anyway, uh, it'll come to me. He's been organizing for many years this expedition to the North Pole uh, to find an opening in the inner Earth. Interesting theory that our world is actually hollow and it's inhabited by an advanced race of uh, beings. My, my next guest uh, has also been intrigued by this idea for some time. Tim Swartz is an Emmy award-winning producer and uh, the author of uh, a book about Admiral Byrd's secret journey beyond the poles. He's a contributing writer uh, for the books are Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, The First Ghostbuster, uh, Brad Steiger's Real Monsters, Gruesome Critters and Beasts from the Dark Side, and Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits and Haunted Places. Well, thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. Hollow Earth is uh, one of um, my favorite topics, you know, that and time travel. Mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago, I did, I did an episode on my television program on the, uh, the Hollow Earth. And uh, talk to me about, I mean... The, if memory serves, the, um, the, uh, the, the member of the Royal Society of Astronomers, uh, Haley, of Haley's Comet fame, actually theorized that all sort of heavenly bodies, all planets, are formed as hollow spheres. Do I have that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, the way that Haley pictured it was that there were almost like, uh, you know, like the Russian nesting dolls. Right. That there were a series of spheres one inside the, uh, the other, and uh, uh, planet Earth was like that. I think that is where we may have uh, uh, gotten our, the, the whole idea of uh, the uh, polar openings uh, enabling us to uh, uh, get inside of the hollow Earth. I don't think that Haley envisioned you know, openings anywhere on, on the crust, but I, I think he was one of the first ones to consider that the planet may not be solid, you know, from uh, surface to surface. Well, there are reports, uh, for example, I, I believe one of the, uh, the astronauts, I'm not sure if it was from Apollo 11 or subsequently, um, mentioned uh, that when they landed on the lunar surface, it, it rang like a hollow bell, which would, send, which would tend to lend some credence to Halley's theory. Right. Actually, that uh, that was a situation where NASA, after the astronauts had landed on the moon, they had uh, positioned one of the uh, uh, sections of the Saturn V rocket uh, that uh, followed the uh, lunar uh, craft uh, to the moon, and they had it actually slam into the surface of the moon, and then uh, instruments, seismic instruments that they had left on the surface of the moon, uh, were to record then the seismic waves after uh, after this hit, and and that's what the report was. It was like the uh, the moon rang, and it, uh, it 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 actually I guess resonated and reverberated for quite a while afterwards. Which uh, and you know even still today has has left uh, scientists mystified on just exactly uh, what the moon is made of. Green hmm. cheese, I maybe <laughs> yeah. uh, hollow green cheese. It would say. yes. Uh, you 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 mentioned seismic um, measurements. Mm -hmm. And and what about 
from the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, is there evidence uh, during an earthquake or, um, I don't know, just measurements would, would, would tend to suggest, are there measurements that would tend to suggest that perhaps the Earth is hollow? You know, that's, that's kind of a tricky subject because, you know, you have one group of uh, geologists who, who claim that uh, measurements taken from earthquakes, especially some of the huge ones that have occurred in South America, um, show that the uh, that the, that the planet is uh, is solid, and in fact, uh, right at the very core of the planet, it's uh, it's it's so solid as to be somewhat of a mystery on what kind of uh, of, of metal is there. Uh, but then you know you have uh, reports that um, uh, that these seismic waves actually have gone through areas that that appear to be uh, uh, almost like going through uh, a water or, or air uh, at, at various points in the planet. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's really still up to judgment. I mean, it, it, it's, it's going to be impossible. I mean, no one really is going to be able to go there physically and, and see for sure. Uh, myself, I tend not to believe so much in the old, you know, stories of, uh, you know, like uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, Pellucidar series, where actually the, the the crust is only say like a thousand miles thick, and uh, and then it's completely hollow inside like an eggshell. Um, I I tend to believe more that uh, the the Earth is uh, uh, crisscrossed with. Uh, large tunnels, some of them natural, some of them possibly uh, uh, constructed at a, uh, um, an earlier date in our history. Well, the, um, that's interesting uh, because there have been a number of extinction uh, events on this earth and uh, the Maya, and of course, have, have alluded to this with their, their, their long count calendars uh, and one has to wonder how you know, they, they may have survived or other civilizations survived some of these events. And, and that would, of course, lead us to the possibility of some underground uh, chamber. Um, have you gleaned any information from the Mayans or the Hopi Indians or, or any of these other, let's say, uh, American Aboriginal uh, civilizations with regards to hollow earth theory? Mm-hmm. You know, practically every society that has existed on this planet since recorded history um, has their creation stories that either have mankind coming from the stars or from underneath the ground, sometimes both. And I, I can't help but think that there is some legitimacy to these stories since practically everybody talks about the same thing. Um, you have, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, old, the old Celtic stories, Babylonian stories, uh, uh, Egyptian before the rise of the, uh, the, the pharaohs and, uh, and, and, and uh, that uh, part of uh, the Egyptian society, on over to uh, North and South America, you have the Inuits who claimed that uh, at one time they lived in an area that was further north than 
they live now, and that that was a land of um, eternal sunlight. The sun never set. It was warm. It was like a paradise. And for some reason, they were forced to leave and uh, and then entered into the, the land of, uh, of, of cold and ice. And then the, you go further south, and then you have the Native American traditions. Uh, one I can think of in particular was the, the, the tribes that lived in the California around the Mount Shasta area right and they claimed that uh, there was a you know a princess that uh, came out of the top of Mount Shasta and that uh, that her land originally uh, was uh, was underneath and that it was uh, her and then her offspring that then populated uh, uh, the world so you know no matter where you go on this planet you're going to run into strikingly similar stories Tim Swartz is uh, our guest here and has for well over a decade investigated the claims that the Earth is hollow or that at least a vast cavern system circles the globe that is inhabited by a mutant race of beings. Now, we are uh, coming up on a break. We have about three minutes here. Let's at least get this uh, part of the discussion started, uh, Tim. And then it has to do, of course, with the uh, the famous uh, voyage of Admiral, Admiral Richard Byrd uh, back in 1947 over the South Pole. Uh, and a lot of controversy over this supposed uh, log entry or diary. Uh, let's 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 begin sort of uh, with the actual voyage itself. Why was he down there? What was he looking for? And what did he claim to see? Well, Admiral Byrd was in uh, the Antarctic region as part of a military uh, operation called Operation High Jump, and it was originally titled the United States Navy Antarctic Developments Program. And this was a United States Navy operation that uh, was organized by uh, Admiral Byrd. And uh, it was a huge task force of uh, a number of, uh, of, of 13 ships, 33 aircraft, uh, a submarine, and over 4,000 men. And it was, you know, it, it was classified as a scientific expedition. But we really have no idea just exactly why they were down there. I mean, you have to remember, this was shortly after the end of World War II when uh, most ships, well, not most, but a lot of ships in the Navy were being decommissioned. There was no reason for them any longer. And yet all of a sudden, somebody decided to uh, bring a lot of these uh, ships uh, and personnel out of mothballs and make a, uh, a quick journey uh, to Antarctica. And it's uh, it, and even today, it's it's still a mystery. All right, and so at at some point, he's he's flying above the um, the Antarctic, and we learn this from his from his, his his diary. What does he What does he see? We've got about a minute here. We'll start it and we'll finish off on the other side. But what does he see? Sure. There, uh, there's a manuscript that has uh, uh, been distributed for a number of years, starting sometime in the early 1960s, called The Missing Diary of Admiral Byrd. And in this, it states that uh, Admiral Byrd was in uh, uh, the, the North, North Polar regions uh, and that uh, his plane with him and his navigator was accosted by uh, uh, flying discs, flying saucers. Uh, all of them having uh, a swastika emblem on them, and that they were uh, escorted uh, through the northern polar openings and then to a great city uh, in the hollow earth. Well, we know that uh, rather than being at the North Pole at the time, uh, Bird was actually in 
the Antarctic uh, region. So we're left to wonder whether or not this manuscript, and I mean, it, it, it has some interesting details, and it makes me think that uh, possibly this may have been a disinformation campaign. All right, let me, let me just jump in here, Tim. We'll take a time out. We'll come back, and we'll uh, continue to delve into Admiral Richard Byrd's uh, very controversial uh, diary uh, about the inner earth, a hollow earth. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. We are back with Emmy Award-winning TV producer Tim Swartz, and we are talking hollow earth. All right, uh, Tim, back to Richard Byrd and uh, this this diary, and whether we get into, before we get into whether or not it may have been a a hoax. Mm -hmm. So what did he actually uh, say happened after his plane was uh, sort of intercepted by this unidentified flying object? The story is very interesting because Bird, uh, in this diary, claimed that uh, his plane was uh, forced, basically, to land outside of this uh, uh, this great city um, uh, underground, and that after he, he after they landed, the uh, the the UFOs uh, landed nearby, and then the. Uh, him and his pilot were taken on board, and then were flown into the city. Where they had a meeting with the uh, the the leader, you know, put this in quotation marks of uh, the the hollow earth civilization. And the interesting thing about this uh, about this story is that it rings very closely to a lot of the tales that were being told at around the same time by the UFO contactees. Uh, like uh, uh, George Damsky and Howard Menger and, right, and right. people like that, who uh, uh, you know talk to uh, uh, very human-looking UFO uh, uh, pilots, and a bird and his navigator were were told by these people that uh, they were extremely interested in um, our nuclear testing that was taking place on the surface and that they were uh, generally concerned that uh, these atomic tests and uh, would would eventually lead to an all-out uh, war on the surface of the planet and that anything that happened on the surface of the planet would uh, eventually end up affecting them as well and uh, they they warned that um the civilization, uh, this great civilization that existed in the hollow earth, was not going to stand by, uh, twiddling their thumbs, uh, waiting for mankind to destroy themselves. That uh, eventually, if we did not curb our warlike ways, that they would uh, they would come out and intervene. Mm-hmm. At first secretly, uh, but then eventually that they would become, uh, you know, more and more uh, apparent and that they would basically take over. You know, I mean, the uh, the, the uh, political systems, the uh, uh, separate uh, uh, national states on the planet would be eliminated, and uh, all of our, uh, our our weapons would be uh, taken away from us. Right. And, Let me just, uh, just uh, back up, if I could, for a second, mm-hmm. Tim. And Now, when, in his diary, Bird, how does he describe entering into this? I mean, he didn't describe flying into a, into a, into a, opening in the earth, it seemed like it just sort of turned from uh, Arctic ice and all of a sudden this verdant landscape appeared before him with, I think he, did he talk about seeing woolly mammoths or something? 
Yeah, uh, that, that's exactly it. He, he said that, uh, and this is this is extremely interesting because the uh, you know the nor- northern polar regions is I mean there's no with the exception of a few islands, um, it's uh, it's all water and ice. So Bird describes as he as they flew further north that um, the ice slowly began to uh, disappear into open water, and then they came across uh, um, uh, large areas of uh, of land, and uh, and and again, and, and and it's interesting. It's almost like the uh, the Inuit legends that these lands were uh, covered with forest and uh, opened uh, water lakes and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, large animals and, uh, like uh, a woolly mammoth and, uh, and creatures like, like that. Uh, um, you know, speculation then is that somehow they, they did fly into the, you know, northern uh, polar opening. But right. you're absolutely right. I okay. mean, you know, there was, there was no report of that. But if you consider... The the legends and stories about the the, the the polar openings there. I mean, they're so large that you would, it would never become apparent that you were flying into exactly. Hole, it would be imperceptible. Know. It would be right, imperceptible. Right. So okay. So back to these beings, mm-hmm. um, and um, it's interesting that you know if the the UFO phenomena is actually uh, explained by these inner Earth inhabitants. I mean, that sort of. Um, Blows away, I guess the uh, the Fermi Fermi uh, paradox. You know, if the if the universe is teeming with life, uh, where are they? Well, they're <laughs> they're right here underfoot. Uh, I mean, that's the whole point of it, isn't it? That that the the ETs they they're not ETs. They're they're right, literally right under our feet. That's it. That's it exactly. And uh, you know, uh, the uh, the late publisher uh, um, um, uh, Richard Palmer, who uh, published Amazing Stories magazines uh, back in the uh, in the 1940s, and then later went on to uh, start Fate magazine, right. Flying Saucers magazine, and, and and the like. I mean, that was that was his favorite theory um, that the, the the whole UFO phenomena was not from other planets, but was from a, a a much older civilization that maybe at one time had lived on the surface of the planet, but due to some kind of cataclysm that had uh, uh, taken pay, place millions of years ago, had moved underground and had, uh, you know, con- continued their, uh, I mean, they had, they had an amazing technology at that time, and it just, you know, has continued to advance uh, uh, since then. And uh, so... You know, I I think that um, it's a very interesting concept, uh, considering that when there is contact between humans and you know the the, the UFO occupants, that the majority of the time that these occupants are described as humanoid, which if you look at uh, uh, you know our present present-day, you know, uh, ideas on evolution, if you had an intelligent species, uh, you know, arise on another planet, you know, light years away, what are the chances that they would actually uh, come out looking very similar to us? Bipedal, two arms, two legs, two eyes. Precisely. And, right. and also, uh, getting back to the whole nuclear issue, mm-hmm. why would someone living light years 
perhaps hundreds of light years away, give a tinker's damn about a, nu- a nuclear explosion. While very serious here on Earth, that would be akin to me lighting a match and someone on Pluto taking notice of that. That's it exactly. I mean, they uh, these these humanoids always said that you know the 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 hydrogen you know, atomic and hydrogen test. Uh, would would have a reverberating effect throughout the uh, the, the solar system and galaxy and the I universe. never bought that. I never yeah, bought that. Yeah, well, you know, and, and and you're absolutely correct. I mean, that doesn't make sense considering. I mean, you know, you have you have stars exploding in the supernovas and uh, you know black holes sucking whole galaxies into them. Why would atomic uh, uh, blast on a little planet? You know, on the back you know backwoods edge of the galaxy mean anything. So I think that it's very reasonable to think that uh, the, the, the people, you know, at, least, at least for some of these accounts, you know, I, I'm not going to go and discount that and say that all UFOs uh, are, are from, you know, uh, inside the Earth or, you know, or, or you know, someplace, someplace on this planet. I mean, they, they could very well, you know, uh, some of them very well could be from other planets. But I do think that uh, uh, due to this interest in uh, humans' warlike ways, that uh, they're concerned because it's going to affect them as well. Well, it also explains, uh, well, for, for example, here in Canada, one of our most celebrated UFO incidents, you might even call it our Roswell, was the Shag Harbor mm-hmm. UFO incident of 1967 off of uh, the coast of Nova Scotia. And uh, this is one of those cases that is actually documented uh, by government officials, the RCMP and and others uh, got involved, and uh, eyewitness accounts see this craft uh, entering into the uh, the frigid waters of the the North Atlantic uh, and then disappearing. And and we're hearing a lot more of these types of uh, accounts off the coast of California, for example. Um, So perhaps that points to some sort of uh, under-ocean entrance to to the inner realm. Well, and supposedly uh, during Operation High Jump, uh, uh, when they were down in Antarctica, there were numerous reports of UFOs being seen um, entering and exiting the frigid waters uh, surrounding the uh, the convoys of ships, uh, as well as being you know seen flying around in the air as well. So, I mean, it's uh, I, I think it is certainly uh, a, a, a point of interest. Well, you know, when it uh, comes to UFOs uh, being seen coming in and out of water, uh, appearing and disappearing into the sides of mountains, and uh, and and other remote locations. Uh, Tim Swartz is with us. He is an Emmy award-winning TV producer. Uh, how did you get in- interested in in the Hollow Earth? You know, one of the first books that I ever bought. Uh, was a, uh, a book written by Timothy Green Beckley um, called the, the let's see, was it the, the Shaver Mystery and Other Inner Earth Stories? I think is what it was called. And it was it was published by uh, the late uh, Gray Barker, and somehow I had gotten hold of one of his catalogs and I and, and I bought this book, and it was just I mean it was just 
it just fascinated me. I mean, I was well familiar at that time with the whole idea that you know UFOs could be uh, extraterrestrial, but now here was another story. Here was another possibility that UFOs could actually be coming from uh, from the inner Earth, and uh, it just that was just a concept that just uh, uh, seized me, and I, I haven't been able to shake it ever since. Uh, so, so is it is it more of a kind of an interesting yarn to be told, uh, a curiosity? Or have you, through your years of research, uh, come to accept that there's a great deal of credence uh, to this? Not only that the Earth is hollow, but the denizens of the inner realms are these various race of, of humanoids. You know, I, I think that there is. I think it's more than just uh, an interesting yarn. Uh, you know, at, at one time before I really got into uh, uh, doing extensive research on the subject, I had kind of come to the belief that, yeah, you know, this, this probably is just, you know, just, just a yarn, just stories. Uh, but once I started uh, really doing the research into that, uh, started looking into the old myths and legends uh, about the inner earth, and then, you know, up until, uh, you know, modern times, uh, how this story has never really gone away. It, it, it has persisted. Uh, with us right up, you know, into this technological era. You know, I mean, we're at a time where we understand more about our universe uh, than than we ever have before. Yet, stories like the inner Earth and the possibility that there there, there could be intelligent life living beneath our feet remain with us. And so, I I think that there is more to it than a lot of the skeptics would uh, would like us to believe. Um, originally, it was um, uh, we're, we're coming up on a break, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue that with this after. Uh, but uh, it was Steve Curry's expedition, um, um, this voyage to the Hollow Earth. They were going to uh, lease this uh, Russian nuclear icebreaker uh, and and find this passage uh, to the inner Earth. And I believe uh, Steve Curry passed away. And I'm, uh, gosh darn, I can't believe I'm forgetting this gentleman's name. I interviewed him for my TV show. I've had him on the radio. Brooks Agnew. Brooks Agnew. Thank yeah. you. Um, we'll take a time out. I, I want to get your your, uh, your take on what Brooks Agnew's uh, attempting to do or attempted to do again and take some scientists and filmmakers uh, in search of an opening uh, in the in the North Pole. We'll continue our conversation with Tim R. Swartz, Emmy Award-winning TV producer, as we continue to discuss the hollow earth right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Uh, Tim, uh, give us a, a website where we can find out more about you. Yes, uh, my website is conspiracyjournal.com. Uh, spelled exactly how it sounds, conspiracyjournal.com. Uh, you can find everything uh, uh, that uh, I've written about, uh, uh, Timothy Green Beckley and some of the others uh, uh, published by Global Communications, and uh, uh, just probably a little uh, something for everybody. Conspiracyjournal.com. All right, we were talking about uh, Brooks Agnew mm-hmm. uh, before the break, and I went down to Mississippi and interviewed him for the TV show, and he's an interesting fellow. Um, the, now, I, I've sort of lost track. The, the last I heard, uh, again, they were going to try and uh, uh, lease this, this icebreaker, I think out of Minsk, Belarus, mm-hmm. uh, and, and in search of the, uh, the inner uh, opening up in the North Pole. 
And I know that there was a huge fundraising campaign to go along with that. They wanted volunteers. They wanted reputable scientists and filmmakers and so forth. Uh, first of all, do you have any updates? Do you know where that, where that uh, expedition is at? Well, it's, uh, uh, it's, it, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> all right. It's, uh, it's, it's still in the process of, uh, of, of you know, trying to raise, you know, uh, raise sufficient funds. Uh, Agnews actually has invested more than, I guess, like $40,000 of his own personal money. Really? Um, into the venture, yes. And uh, uh, the, you know, Unfortunately, there is uh, you know only a limited amount of time that they are actually able to do this, and plus they have to uh, rent this uh, this icebreaker, which is the only uh, uh, nuclear powered uh, icebreaker you know on the planet. So I mean it's 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 not like you know you can pick and choose which one that uh, that that you're going to get, and. Uh, and you know, it's uh, it's it's a daunting task, you know, to 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 try to uh, put something like this together, and uh, you know the 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 person that you had mentioned uh, uh, before our last Steve break, Steve Curry, yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, he uh, he had gotten quite a ways along before he uh, unfortunately passed away, and then uh, um, everything kind of fell into uh, into Brooks' lap, you know, to try to continue the project. And uh, you know, I don't know if um, if he'll ever be able to uh, to make this happen. Happen, you know, because I mean, not only is there monetary issues, but there are the uh, you know the the, the, the skeptics who uh, are, you know just uh, trying to get uh, you know scientists on board and uh, uh, film crews. I mean, I know that there are people who would uh, who would love to do this, but uh, not everybody has the uh, sufficient amount of money to uh, to invest in a uh, no. in an operation that Certainly. may or may not accomplish anything. Certainly not. And what are the claims again from the skeptics? Uh, look, this is all easily uh, dispelled. Just look at any satellite photo. Uh, of that region of the Earth, and you'll see quite clearly that there's no opening there. And then others have countered well, but you'll notice that meant most of the time they're obfuscated by, uh, obscured by cloud cover, and or it's easily, you know, photoshopped. Uh, um, weigh in on that argument, if you would. Well, once again, like I said, you know, I, I'm not totally convinced that uh, you know, on the reality of the polar openings, for just some of the reasons that. Uh, uh that that you have listed i mean if if you, if there are such openings in the the north and uh, south polar regions then i would you know and, and most people would agree you would think that uh, um uh, they would have been these picture pictures of these uh, uh, of these areas would have been released a long time ago however uh especially the north pole is almost constantly uh, covered in clouds. Uh, Antarctica, on the other hand, the, you know, the, a large majority of the times, I mean, you're able to get some very clear shots. There have been, though, uh, especially with uh, the Antarctic region, there has been some very interesting pictures that have been taken uh, by satellites that seem to show some kind of uh, of opening in the crust. Oh really? Uh, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, and but it's not like uh, um, it, 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 you know we're not talking about say like something that's you know like a thousand miles 
uh, uh, wide. It's uh, I, I can't remember like uh, what the diameter is supposed to be, and it seems to be a little bit more uh, uh, roughly shaped, you know, like maybe partially uh, covered with ice. But the one picture I'm thinking of in particular, see, it seems to almost show uh, like a uh, an, an aurora type of effect. Uh, coming out of it. Okay, listen, I've got to jump in here. We'll take another time out, come back, and uh, we'll uh, we'll circle back, uh, speaking of the Antarctic, we'll circle back to Richard Byrd and whatever happened to the Admiral and that famous uh, diary. Back with more of my conversation with Tim Swartz here on The Conspiracy Show. Do not touch that dial. And we're back with uh, Tim Swartz as we discuss uh, the hollow earth. Uh, and uh, the website, again, is conspiracyjournal.com, and we, we've linked up to that. Uh, on our website here at strangeplanet.ca. Just go to the radio page. All right, uh, so Tim, uh, we, we, um, we're going to circle back to uh, Admiral, Bur- Admiral Byrd dialing back to 1947. So is, he's debriefed in Washington. Is that true? After, after he claims he entered into this opening in the Antarctic and, and uh, uh, met with the, uh, the occupants of the inner Earth? <laughs> well, you know, the interesting, uh, the interesting thing uh, about this is that uh, after um, Operation High Jump, which was supposed to last the, uh, the majority of the, uh, um, the southern summer, they suddenly pulled up in about six weeks' time and came back. Um, Admiral Byrd told a... Uh, a newspaper crew that was embedded in this operation, the, uh, uh, the newspaper was the uh, El Material uh, from Chile, and he basically told them that it was his concern that um, the United States could be vulnerable to attack from aircraft that could uh, 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 travel um, over the polar regions. Um, and we would have no defense against them. Uh, when he came back, he had a, uh, a secret briefing with uh, both a, uh, a, a, a congressional-led scientific committee and then uh, a Congress, himself, Congress themselves, where he basically uh, reportedly, now uh, these, uh, uh, these documents have never been officially uh, released, which is extremely unusual, uh, but uh, supposedly uh, he, he said the same thing, that uh, the United States uh, um, um, risked being attacked by aircraft uh, coming over the North and South uh, Pole. And uh, what's especially interesting is that uh, the late uh, James Forrestal, mm-hmm. who yeah. was the, uh, the, the uh, 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 I remember certainly exactly, like Secretary of Defense at right. the time, yes. shortly thereafter uh, went insane and was running down the halls of the Pentagon uh, shouting that, uh, that we were going to be attacked and that there was nothing that anybody could do, with, do about it. And then shortly thereafter, after he had been uh, institutionalized, he committed suicide. Right, or suicided. <laughs> right, case, right. Maybe. And I also, I, I don't think that it's a coincidence that just a few months later, in um, July of 1947, we had what uh, supposedly was the crash of a UFO at Roswell, New Mexico, uh-huh. the only place in the country that um, had uh, atomic weapons. Right, and at the Roswell Army country. Airfield. Right, right, right. And the only place in the country that could deliver atomic aircraft. Uh, so uh, is, is, it, is the, the, the idea here then that Byrd was not warning about uh, the vulnerability uh, from 
our Cold War enemies. Uh, he was actually talking about an attack from uh, somewhere inside the inner Earth with advanced weaponry. You know, it's it's very interesting because you have possibly two stories that have intertwined themselves. Uh, one story has it that Admiral Byrd actually had uh, had gone to uh, the Antarctic region with Operation High Jump in order to route out a secret Nazi base mm. that had been established uh, um, at the end of World War II where um, 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 highly secret uh, uh, super technology, uh, you know, uh, like the Dirklocken, the, the Bell, right, and uh, the SS Bell, uh, right. and, and uh, possibly uh, you know um, exotic disc-shaped uh, craft that we know that the Nazis were working on uh, you know, at, at the time. There was also a, the consideration that uh, the Nazis had uh, basically gone into collusion, you know, with these uh, these beings that have uh, that that live in in the Hollow Earth. Now that that part of the story may be you know a little bit more fantastic, but we do know that uh, Hitler was extremely interested in uh, trying to discover. This underground society. I mean, he had commissioned uh, several expeditions to uh, Tibet and Nepal to uh, to look for uh, uh, Shambhala and Agartha, that uh, supposedly were you know underground uh, kingdoms. That, right, right. You know, that, well, you know, Hitler felt that uh, they were the root race of the the whole Aryan uh, nation that uh, that they believed in. So. Um, it's, well, that's interesting, interesting because weren't the um, I mean the Nazi the Nazis were occultists. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. People may try to make the claim that they were Christians. That look, they put crosses on their tanks. No, they were occultists. Right. Uh, and a lot of that was sort of tied up into wasn't it the, the Theosophists and Madame Blavatsky and and there's interesting tie-ins with Blavatsky and the whole UFO phenomena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, the uh, you know the early uh, twenty, well, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. Uh, I mean, there were all kinds of uh, uh, of secret occult societies that had uh, sprung up in uh, you know Europe and the and the United States. Uh, Bulbosky was uh, was one of these groups. Um, there was also the uh, the the Tool Society, uh, which uh, was entrenched in uh, in Germany and was kind of taken over. Uh, by the by the Nazis, and you know the Tool Society claimed that they had uh, received uh, like uh, um, um, channeled information coming from uh, uh, beings from another planet, and that they were given uh, basically instructions on how to build exotic uh, disc-shaped uh, technology. It it, it actually it, it came out later. That uh, there were members of the Tool Society who believed that this, that these communications weren't coming from an extraterrestrial source, but were coming from uh, beings that lived within the Hollow Earth. Well, Tim, you've certainly confirmed one thing, and that is that the Nazis were nothing but a bunch of tools. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> I've conf- yes, suspicions confirmed. Uh, oh, so, um, well, I mean, how much of that do you do you subscribe to? I mean, if if it's true that Byrd encountered Admiral Byrd encountered this race uh, in '47, and if there is a potential tie-in with Roswell, then it's also conceivable, I suppose. And I've I've talked to Richard or uh, to uh, Joseph Farrell uh, uh, at length about uh, uh, the Nazis and their their secret technology. Um, I mean, the, the things do start to line up. I mean, the you know the dots start to connect here. Is there any credence, do you think, to the uh, 
the, the Nazis in in being in contact with this this race? We have some interesting stories that have come about with the uh, saying that the Nazis actually did come across, say, like their own version of Roswell uh, in the late 1930s. Uh, there was one, I think, supposedly that, that, that crashed in Poland uh, that, that, that the Nazis uh, got a hold of. So it, uh, it makes you wonder whether or not, if, if this is true, if this was the case, that once they got a hold of this craft, they quickly discovered that they weren't dealing with an extraterrestrial aircraft, that they were dealing with something that uh, that came a lot closer, and that uh, uh, then uh, some kind of communication was established. Um, now, you know, going back around again to uh, Admiral Byrd and his uh, Operation High Jump, uh, I... There, there's been a lot of stories that have come out that uh, Operation Hijab, you know, ended early because they were attacked by Nazi flying saucers, you know, and, mm -hmm. and basically driven back to the United States. Um, I, I wondered though whether or not they went down there, uh, you know, seeking this base and found either an abandoned base or nothing at all, and and came back because I think that a lot of the actual operations that were going on were in uh, Argentina. Yes. And that uh, 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 they, they, you know, the Operation High Jump was basically, you know, set down there on uh, a, a false, uh, you know, under a false pretense. Uh, once again, to, um, to hide this exotic technology and possibly to hide the fact that there was some kind of collusion taking place with an underground civilization and, uh, and Nazi Germany. Now, take this then a step further, and after then the crash at Roswell, that then the United States became embroiled in all of this, uh, un being first told if, there, if these cra crashed exotic aircraft did have survivors being told at first that yeah we're you know we're we're from Zeta Reticuli or Mars or Venus or whatever and then only to find out later that it wasn't true that they were dealing with beings that came from right here on planet earth with us right or in if it was in fact uh, advanced uh, aircraft developed by the Nazis i mean mm -hmm. how do you explain to the american public that uh, the united states was under surveillance or attack uh, by a regime you supposedly uh, defeated uh, two, two and a half, three years earlier. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, the, uh, the, the first concern by the, uh, the, uh, the military and the government after whatever it was that crashed at Roswell had nothing to do with Nobody ever mentioned extraterrestrials. The first things that were written about in secret communications was that they feared that this was Nazi-based technology. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and I so and and uh, um, you know the 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 writer Walter Bosley has uh, has written about his own father's experience and saying that uh, whatever it was that crashed at Roswell was an aircraft from an underground civilization that lived uh, fairly close by to uh, to that location. 
Uh, just a couple of minutes left here, but uh, the uh, the occupants of the, this, this race of beings, and we're talking about more than one. You've mm-hmm. mentioned giants, you've mentioned uh, descendants of the Atlanteans, and you've mentioned another uh, group. Is it Dero, D-E-R-O? Right, Richard Shaver's Dero. Yes. Well, just run through very quickly who these groups are. Well, we'll start with Richard Shaver's Dero. You know, Richard Shaver was a, a gentleman who uh, wrote uh, stories for Amazing Stories magazine back in the 1940s. And, uh, you know, he said that uh, he had received uh, mental communications uh, uh, from these beings that they had belonged to a, uh, a race of extraterrestrials that had landed on and, and lived on, on Earth uh, several millions of years ago, and then at one point our sun turned radioactive, and they couldn't live under that those conditions. So the majority of them uh, got back into their spaceships and left. Those that remained behind uh, moved underground. They either built their own tunnels or used uh, uh, cavern systems that already began there, and uh, but unfortunately they still couldn't quite escape. Uh, the, the the detrimental effects uh, from the sun, and as time went by, they basically you know mutated and you know just d- turned into not very nice uh, uh, um, um, creatures, but they still had access to this fantastic uh, technology, and uh, Shaver says that the Dero were responsible for you know like a lot of the bad things that happened to us you know, on the surface of the planet, you know, with uh, the, these creatures torturing us with this uh, this technology. It's kind of like a modernized version of uh, the, you know, angels and demons uh, uh, type of scenario. Exactly. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Sadly, we are out of time, but that means we'll just have to do a part two in the not-too-distant future. Uh, Tim, really, I, I enjoyed this conversation immensely and uh, look forward to speaking with you again. Well, thank you very much, Richard. I had a great time tonight, and I hope your audience enjoyed it as well. All right. That was Tim Swartz once again, conspiracyjournal.com, the website, and my website. If you're interested in finding out more about the Conspiracy Show program, either on radio or TV or our live events, go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and there you'll, you'll see the, uh, the radio a section, the TV section, and the live event section. And hey, don't forget, say hi on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. Follow the truth. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your cabin, RV, your taxi, your cabin in the woods. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett, and a special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, here in Toronto, AM 740 and FM 96.7. Or perhaps you're listening in on the Zoomer Radio app, which is really cool, by the way. It has a real retro feel. As I look at it uh, on my uh, my smartphone, it reminds me of uh, the transistor radio I used to listen to under the bed with the flashlight when I was supposed to be asleep. Uh, it looks... Really cool, as I say. It's a free download, incidentally. Uh, Or maybe you're listening in on the Conspiracy Show app. That, too, is a free download. Uh, Online at zoomerradio.ca, the podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, TalkZone.com. Then, of course, the affiliates down in the U.S., However, and wherever you're listening to The Conspiracy Show, thank you. 
and welcome. The publisher and editor of World Affairs Brief, Joel Skousen, is lurking in the shadows and preparing to join us to discuss the Donald Trump phenomenon. Uh, and Ben Carson, uh, too, for that matter. Uh, this is the season of the uh, political outsider, to be sure. The more brazen and bold the candidate, the more contentious they are of Washington, the better. Uh, and if the MSM, the mainstream media, is lined up against these politically incorrect candidates, that's even better. Uh, Trump and Carson continue to fascinate uh, the electorate, at least registered Republicans. And we'll get into all of that when Joel Skousen joins us in mere moments. Uh, it's also that time of the month. We're due for another visit from our resident paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, I believe we'll reach her down in Arizona where she's preparing to conduct uh, some research and investigate an old ghost town somewhere in the southwestern desert. Uh, but she's going to talk about a fresh Bigfoot sighting in Virginia. Uh, this one... Uh, a woman claims she saw a female Bigfoot carrying a baby Bigfoot across a lonely stretch of highway. And also, we'll talk about possessed cars. Remember the Stephen King novel turned into a film uh, by uh, Chris Carpenter, I think it was? Christine? About this haunted car? Well, Rosemary has uh, some very similar stories from uh, history. Uh, first order of business, however. Donald Trump and Ben Carson versus uh, the U.S. political establishment. Uh, Joel Skousen is with us. He is the editor and publisher of the World Affairs Brief, an alternative news service, and we'll tell you how to subscribe, an alternative news service that is dedicated to exposing the secret machinations of world leaders. Joel Skousen, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I am just fine. It's, uh, the world is changing rapidly, and uh, it's, we're working hard to keep up with things, but uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm fine. Thank you. Well, I've been uh, wanting to speak to you for some time. I'm, I've actually been quite excited about talking, getting a chance to talk to you about uh, this whole uh, uh, primary season. Well, we're not into the primary season yet, but the, the lead up to it. And to me, this is one of potentially one of the most exciting, interesting, bizarre um, uh, election cycles in the history of the United States. And I'm talking, of course, about uh, the three front runners for the Republican Party, all outsiders, Trump, uh, Carly Fiorina, and, of course, uh, Dr. Ben Carson. And this is, seems to be throwing the Republican establishment, the equestrian class, whatever you want to call them, the unelected oligarchs, uh, into – they're just driving them nuts because they can't get their anointed, uh, anointed uh, establishment candidate uh, in there. What are your thoughts on, on what you see so far? Well, it all started with the uh, – the rise of uh, Ted Cruz and Rand Paul. Those were the early on conservative favorites for the Tea Party. And so the Republican establishment basically induced, uh, you know, about uh, 14 or 15 other candidates to jump in the race. And that's, this is the first time that that's happened. That the Republican establishment has not discouraged, but encouraged a flood of candidates. And what this did as a strategy was to dilute the support for the two that they particularly didn't want, Cruz and Rand Paul. Now, even though, uh, you know, Cruz has taken, he's a legitimate conservative. He has been since college. Uh, there's no doubt, uh, you know, he's like Ronald Reagan. He had a history of 20 years of writing conservative causes. This is not a Johnny-come-lately. And Rand Paul, being the son of Ron Paul, is not a Johnny-come-lately to the field as well. Now, um the establishment, as I said, started to flood the, uh, the, the party with candidates to dilute 
so that none of these two would come up with anything but uh, sub-10 uh, polling numbers. And then they decided to give a lot of publicity to Donald Trump, who was one of those that took the bug in the ear to jump in the race. And he's been in the race before, like in 2012. But it's interesting to compare the two. In 2012, they didn't give him any attention, hardly at all. And they let him die as quickly as he, as he came in. But this time, they literally hung on every word of Donald Trump. And the reason was, because, not because he's an establishment candidate, um, though he has been... You know, all over the map politically, he's been a friend of the Clintons. He's been, uh, you know, a Democrat. He's been for a single-payer health care system. But he certainly understands the driving cause of the conservatives. He's been making all kinds of statements. And the reason I believe the press gave him tremendous press was because he's uncareful. He makes mistakes. He's generally true in his criticisms. But he says them in such an uncareful way, like Mexico is deliberately bringing people across the border, which isn't true. They are facilitating it. They are not rounding up coyotes who facilitate it, which is the easiest thing in the world, to send in people and to pose as refugees and then arrest the coyotes. I mean, you could shut down the coyote immigration system in a month if you wanted to. But it is not true that they are, uh, you know, in Mexican trucks shipping people across the border. So what I'm saying is, is they get Trump to make statements that discredit the view so that they can use him as a whipping boy, as a straw man, if you will, to knock it down. The purpose was is to make sure that none of the other conservative candidates took up those embarrassing statements uh, because they'd already been discredited with Trump. But, but it seems it to have backfired. It, yes, indeed. It backfired. Continue. It, yes. it backfired. The people didn't care about the minor errors. They saw the basic issue was as true. The immigration is a problem. They're tired of political correctness. They're tired of, of candidates being, you know, subtly pressured by the media to stay within line and to toe the party line, to be very careful. And Donald Trump is not careful, and people are loving it. Yes, it's, it's, it's about the authenticity, isn't it? About authenticity being unscripted yes. and not having any ties uh, to uh, to special interest or the establishment or or uh, you know big corporate donors, he's beholden to no one but himself. That's right. Now, Mitt Romney as well was uh, in the previous election cycle had his own money. He wasn't beholden to donors, so he would have to you know seek campaign financing. But he was bending over backwards to please the establishment, and conservatives just don't like that. Trump has just thumbed his nose at him, especially Megyn Kelly or the conservatives just, you know, ripped her up the one side down and the other. And, you know, all of these debates with the media has been uh, posing attack questions rather than the issues uh, has just been an embarrassment. Uh, it's been blatant manipulation. And nobody but Trump simply is fighting back at the media and saying, look, you guys, you're not being honest. This is the way it is. And even though he's uncareful, people don't mind. He likes, they like a straight talker. And it's, it's a great manifestation, Richard, of the fact that we've got a lot of fed-up people in the United States that are just tired of business as usual. And when John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, announced his resignation, there was a resounding cheer that went up across America, uh, conservatives across America. And the establishment is royally embarrassed. They'll give us another John Boehner to replace him. But it is exemplifying how dissatisfied conservatives are with the establishment. 
Joel Skousen, editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief, and we'll tell you how to get uh, a subscription to that uh, wonderful publication in just a few moments. Uh, but am I, am I being naive here when I say that, that Trump, or whether it, it's uh, uh, you know, Trump and Carson or Fiorina or Carson or whomever, uh, has finally managed to smash the grip of the um, the uh, the uh, the equestrian class or the the unelected oligarchs on the on the process. Am I being naive or am I being a, a little uh, uh, a little early in that prediction? Yeah, I think you're a little overly optimistic, and here's why. First of all, we cannot include uh, Carly Fiorina as a non-establishment candidate. Uh, she's got way too much background. Uh, with the establishment serving on a um, NSA CIA review committee, especially chosen by uh, um, Clayton, uh, and so you know they don't choose people to be on these controlled committees who aren't somewhat predictable to the, ins- the insiders. So I'm not going to include her in my assessment as someone who's. In fact, they have promoted her significantly both in the first debate when she was in the second tier, and in this other debates saying she was the winner of this. I mean, they're clearly promoting, and they don't promote uh, Ben Carson and Trump uh, in, a, in that same way. They don't pr- promote Cruz or Rand no. Paul. Although to be fair, Anybody? she although to be fair, Joel, she was very impressive and succinct uh, in in the second yeah, in the she, CNN. Yeah, she debate. she is. But boy, if you if as I covered in my World Affairs brief, if you listen to her talk about the Muslims, I mean, this lady is an off the wall neocon. In terms of the, uh, you know, promoting the the issue of of uh, you know Muslim enhancement, I mean, she talked about Suleiman the Magnificent as if he was some great reformer, some kindly gentleman. I mean, he was a ruthless, bloodthirsty killer. Uh, you know, she's just uh, a real problem in terms of the establishment positions that she has taken, and I think she's carefully taking. Uh, other positions to match a conservative view at this time, but I don't have any confidence in her, especially someone who is praised as up-and-coming woman executive. You know, women tend to be promoted by the establishment because at the same time they promote women as career and women as leaders, uh, you know, as a cross-conflict with uh, traditional Western values. Not that women can't be leaders. Margaret Thatcher was a, a... an excellent leader in most regards, uh, and really turned around things for a while there in the UK. Uh, but she eventually succumbed to the globalists and betrayed uh, Hong Kong to the Chinese communists, which she didn't have to do. On human rights basis, she could have refused that to honor that contract of giving it back to China. Right. Do you think, uh, getting back to Trump now, um, do you think that if this trend continues, now he did slip a little bit after the CNN debate, but uh, according to other polls, though, he's, uh, he's right where he, you know, he was. Uh, do you think at some point if he continues, and I, uh, listen, I, I quite uh, like the man, and I, and I like the overarching themes that he's pounding on and bringing certain issues to the fore, but do you think uh, he is such a threat to the political establishment, the globalists and what have you, that... Uh, something, something untoward, underhanded might happen if he's not careful. Yeah, it will have to. Uh, I'll be very frank. You cannot have a president of the United States who refuses to follow his own script, even write his own speech. I mean, he will not. He only wants to speak off the cuff. He won't sit down and and learn. 
a speech. He won't stick to a script, even his own. You can't have that. I mean, what you say is is far too important as the president of the United States to be uncareful. And uh, so he wouldn't be good either for the conservatives or the liberals. I mean, as an example, he took a position on Syria that was absolutely wrong and off the wall. He parroted the establishment interest that Assad has to go, that he was guilty of chemical weapons. I mean, he just... He's, he's fairly well informed on some of these other, but completely uninformed about Syria. If he wanted to really rattle the establishment cage, he should have said they falsified the attack against Assad uh, and, and should have defended him and, and struck out against the globalists. So I'm not really enthused about trusting Trump um, to stay with the correct positions. And I think there'll be dirty tricks, whatever it takes, to take him down. Now, as I covered in last week's World Affairs Brief, or the previous one, about the primary system. The Republican establishment has changed the primary system to be able to do tremendous manipulation once they get into that season. Okay, let me just jump in here, uh, Joe, excuse me, because we're going to take a time out. We'll come back and we'll talk about this, uh, uh, the Republican primary season. And uh, I think they may have something to do with, I think they call them proportionate delegates or something like that. But we'll we'll discuss when we get back uh, with the editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. And we are back with Joel Scows. And Joel, before we continue uh, with the uh, the surprise uh, Republican uh, uh, primary season, as we enter into the primary season, let's uh, find out how we can subscribe to World Affairs Brief. Well, people can go to my w- website, which is worldaffairsbrief.com, and they can read a summary of the current brief. They can also, as it says at the bottom of that, uh, receive a free sample copy of the current brief by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. Dot com, and I'll send out the latest brief to them. I think they'll find it very informative. All right. Um, recent changes to the Republican, uh, the, the primary uh, caucus uh, electoral process. What's changed, and um, how are they going to use this? I say they, the, the establishment, whether we're talking about the Koch brothers or whomever. How are they going to use this to make sure they get their candidate uh, nominated? Well, it's, it's a little bit complex. I'll try to simplify as much as I can. This started in 2012 when they failed to stop Mitt Romney as an independent candidate with his own money, like Donald Trump. They failed to stop him from getting the nomination. And they had actually, at the national level, make 8 to 10 million votes disappear in order to defeat Romney, which they did. They refuse to let someone they don't have dirt on or they don't control in the White House, even if they're bending over backwards trying to please them because somebody with morals will not go along with some of the agenda that they see as president of the United States. Now, one of the first things they did was uh, prompt a lot of the states to, to try to get ahead of Iowa and New Hampshire by moving their primary out. As you know, in the American primary system, which lasts about three months, by the time the first month is through, the candidate is usually surged to the head, and the primaries mean nothing after that. And so other states wanting to get ahead and get in the top third so they can have some influence on it, tried to leapfrog over that. Republican National Committee came out and threatened severely any states that, first of all, you can't get in front of New Hampshire and Iowa. And that's because Iowa and New Hampshire are very manipulative states in terms of Republican primaries. One is the Iowa's a caucus state, which really is like a tail guard tailgate party who can ever throw the biggest party gets the most people to come and, and uh, 
and vote uh, and can usually influence that election. And New Hampshire is extremely all over the map in terms of independence, representing a full third to a half of the voters in New Hampshire. So those are very, a lot of swing votes that can be manipulated as well. The second change they made, besides restricting and making sure no states could get ahead of those important manipulative primary states, is they said any uh, primaries before March the, uh, 15th has to be proportional representation. Now, this is very strange to analyze because the establishment usually likes winner-take-all because they have normally been able to promote a candidate early, say these are the top-winning candidates and get them established early, and so they take all the votes of every primary they win. But ever since 2008, when they tried to foist Rudolph Giuliani, conservatives have a, had a fit, and they had to resurrect John McCain from a 2% rating into a higher rating by having six Democratic newspapers uh, endorse it. I mean, this was so highly manipulated in 2008. And they failed again in 2012 to get their establishment candidates in there, uh, Newt Gingrich and others. Uh, and so um, they are now worried that we can't get winner-take-all, and we don't want a conservative to get winner-take-all, lest he get ahead so far in the early primaries that we can't stop it. So that's why they suddenly just changed to proportional, meaning that you get the proportion of votes that uh, of delegates that correspond to the votes that you get in the primary. But everything after March 3 is open to being winner-take-all. And especially Florida, they just changed this year to winner-take-all. And that's because George Bush, who their their number one insider candidate, former president or former governor of, of New Jersey, and Jeb Marco Bush, Rubio, Jeb, yes, Jeb Bush. Sorry, I think Jeb you said Bush, George, right? Right. Uh, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio is also a former senator or a current senator from uh, from Florida, and so that's going to be a one-two punch. Rubio really won't take from Jeb Bush votes; he'll take from other conservatives, and so it will ensure that Jeb Bush gets that now. That the other rule change is that you have to win eight primary states even to get on the ballot at the Republican National Committee. That eliminates all the small guys, but here's what it does. This is why they bring in John Kasich of Ohio and, and Pataki of New York. They haven't got a chance with the conservatives, but they ensure that those two will lock up all the votes in Ohio, winning a winner-take-all in New York. And then in the convention can give those votes to Jeb Bush. Ah, interesting. So and you Jeb can't Bush, win without Florida and Ohio. That's right. So you see, they can lock up Florida, Ohio, and New York, big delegate votes, and transfer all those to Jeb Bush. So Jeb Bush, with less than 20% support nationwide, can still win the presidential nomination once the primary season starts. And that's why they made all those changes. Isn't that interesting? Uh, we could have a situation where Jeb Bush, who is around, what, 6 7 8% in the polls among right. uh, registered Republicans, could end up getting the nomination. Now, if he doesn't, if somehow... Uh, a Trump or a Fiorina or a – well, you mentioned – you say the establishment would have no problem with Fiorina. Uh, so maybe we'll see them really well, start to push. Yeah. Or, uh, but if Trump were to get through, do you see then the, the establishment saying, well, we, we need to run a third party and we'll take, we'll take Hillary or Biden over Trump? So they'll, they'll run a third party candidate uh, in order to ensure that Trump doesn't get in. Um. You know, that's a hard call to make. Uh, it's very obvious to me at this day, and I've been predicting this for four years, that they don't want Hillary. Um, first of all, Hillary would actually try to run the White House, even though they have plenty of dirt on Hillary. 
secret bank accounts and all, um, she would still want to run things. And they kind of like more compliant puppets like Barack Obama and George W. Bush. But it really is time. When you look at the enthusiasm people have for, Ch- for Trump, because they're just tired of political correctness, they're tired of the establishment, and look at the outrage over Boehner. I mean, they really need to give the American people some a, a pill to swallow to make them calm down. You don't do that by giving them Hillary. That yeah. energizes the opposition. You do it by giving them a controlled Republican. And, you know, I'm not sure they couldn't control, uh, you know, Donald Trump. Uh, but I just don't think, you know, that scenario is ever going to come to pass. I, I think that they're going to be able They're already, every headline almost on Google every day, Donald Trump's number is falling. Donald, you can't pick and choose the polls. Your numbers are falling. The media is just in a mass manipulation mode. And I think it will eventually be effective. But not till the primary season, when in fact you see you give legitimacy to Bush when he starts winning the Florida primary, gets so many delegates, he gets proportional up to that point. And now he's coming up in the race, and people are very much affected by this. Who's the leader, and are you going to go with the leader? Well, but if if they deliver a Jeb Bush to the White House, that's certainly not going to quell the uh, the uh, the anger out there, the uh, almost a revolutionary spirit. Uh, how does that help? Well, the- it, now, you have to remember that we're talking about the Republicans uh, liable to vote in the primary, which are very much conservative. These are nowhere near a majority of the nation. Once Jeb Bush gets to be with his moderate, middle-of-the-road positions, it'll start to take. Remember, he's speaking to the choir right now, to the faithful, and he's lying about his vision. He'll switch positions once he gets the nomination, take a much more moderate point of view, a sure. liberal point of view. And so he won't be, uh, there won't be a rebellion against him. But you've got to remember, the rebellion against the Democrats and Obama and Hillary Clinton is so bad that it would take a miracle, uh, I mean, literally, to elect Hillary Clinton. Oh, I agree. I mean, she has so many strikes against her. There's, of course, the, uh, the, the, the foundation, the Clinton Foundation. The only reason that was thrown out of court was the judge that ruled was one of their appointments. Right. Then you've got the whole, uh, the, apparently there's an arms trader um, uh, that uh, is um, going to court uh, relating to arms being run in and out of the diplomatic outpost in Benghazi that could tie back to the State Department giving them him's tacit approval, which is uh, against right. a violation of the law, and Hillary could be wrapped up in that. Then, of course, there's the email thing that won't go away. Now there's some speculation that she may have uh, the, the early stages of multiple sclerosis. Which may be just her out. I don't know, but uh, I don't. I don't see her making it uh, even to the to primary season necessarily. So who do they go for? Biden, Gore? <laughs> no, I don't think they intend to give us a Democrat. I mean, they know the world's had enough, and they need a Republican to one hmm. who will guarantee that he will not uh, uh, take away Obamacare. He will not undo anything of the Obama administration. He will continue the neocon agenda, and George uh, Jeb Bush is the one who's going to do that. So I really think we're going to see a a strong push to the primary, uh, you know, to get that done. I just, I I think that Hillary will run because they want to defeat her. And they they could have stopped all of these revelations before. They could have stopped that arm trader. They still might, but... uh, So if I'm hearing you correctly, Joel, you're predicting another Bush in the White House, Jeb Bush. Well, I'm saying that's who they wanted. They actually wanted Chris Christie uh, before Jeb Bush, and he shot himself in the foot over Bridgegate. And, you know, because of his chumminess with Obama and 
being a demo, uh, you know, in a democratic state and the compromise. I mean, he is capable of really energizing. He's a good speaker. Uh, yes. Uh, they, they distrust his obesity. I distrust his obesity. Strong, hard-driving men who have obesity problems also have moral problems. There's a very strong correlation there. And I know he's got a lot of skeletons in his closet. Um, but uh, well, That's interesting. Uh, let me, let me, if I could, just take a minute to delve into that. I've not heard that before. There's a correlation between uh, highly driven individuals with an who obesity are obese. who are yeah. obese. Which what? means they have very highly selective drive. In other words, they're hard driving and... and tenacious control when they want to be, but uh, when they don't have it, in, in, it just ends up being a correlation with the moral problem, pornography, immorality, other types of things. Uh, Interesting. Interesting. Well, he is uh, sort of in the, the Trump mold that he will say, he, he, he is often unscripted and, and says some pretty off-the-cuff uh, uh, controversial things, but he's, I guess, not Trump in that he is very much a part of the uh, the establishment. Yeah, yeah, he is. And uh, he's uh, he's really gone out of his way to fool conservatives in, in New Jersey, and uh, you know, I don't trust him uh, uh, very much. But I, I, you know, even though I don't think that Donald Trump is controlled, uh, he's just not trustworthy as a conservative. He doesn't have a background as a conservative. Uh, He's not reliable in, in terms. Of, he, he just didn't have the principle base that allows him to, to one to have confidence that he would follow a pattern once he got to be president. I what, think he could be manipulated. What about Dr. Ben Carson? Now Ben Carson is a Johnny come lately to the conservative field. Um, you don't get invited to speak at the White House in front of Obama if you've got a strong conservative track record. It just doesn't happen. Although, if you listen to that speech, I mean, I don't think Obama was, <laughs> I don't think Obama was expecting that speech, was he? I mean, he compared Obamacare to slavery. Saying. Yeah, that's that's precisely what I'm saying. Is that there was no hint to the White House that he was going to throw that bomb. Ah. There was no hint in his background that he had any such feelings. He was an establishment medical doctor, and uh, you know, with a big reputation, but he had no track record of speaking out on conservative causes or even speaking out against the establishment medical system. And so that gave liberals confidence that here's a person who can praise the system. So, predictably then, I mean, he comes out, he, look, uh, he's a fan of my uncle, W. Cleon Skousen, he's read most of his books, he's mentioned that publicly. Uh, so, I think he just never articulated his conservative views. I think he's had some for a long time. But he isn't real strong on some of the issues. I mean, he's talked about forced vaccinations. Yes, that's true. That's true. Hot point with with conservatives. He's not real strong on foreign policy. He could, he will get trapped into the neocon agenda. But this much I will say, they cannot afford, just as in Romney's case, to have someone who they don't have lots of dirt on, they don't have tight chains on, to allow them into the White House. I'm convinced if Ben Carson won, he'd be just like Romney. He'd see the Benghazi thing going down and a stand-down order to the military not to rescue the ambassador. He'd say, what's going on here? Stop that right now. And you can't have someone who's got moral principles that's going to get in the way of the secret, dark, side agendas that's going on in the White House all the time. Oh, that's such a tragedy. So, so <laughs> here we is. go again. Nothing. They cannot allow. They cannot allow Ben Carson to get in. Nothing will change. Yeah. All right, uh, Joel. Uh, once again, how can we subscribe to World Affairs Brief? People can go to worldaffairsbrief.com and get a free sample issue by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. Always a pleasure, Joel. Thank you for your time. 
Thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure here. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Joel Skousen, World Affairs Brief. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Paranormal Investigator, and our Paranormal News Roundup. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert in the metaphysical and paranormal fields with more than 60 books published on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias and reference works. Her work is translated into 15 languages. Her current work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences, problem hauntings, spirit and entity attachments, the afterlife, and spirit communications, psychic skills, dream work for well-being, spiritual growth and development, angels, past and parallel lives, an investigation of unusual paranormal activity. She has worked full-time in the field since 1983. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? Well, I'm doing quite well, Richard. I'm enjoying my time in Arizona. I've been out here for an afterlife conference, and I'm going to get to do a little paranormal research in the next few days as well. Excellent. And what are you researching down there in the desert? We're spending a couple of days in Jerome, and that's um, not too far from Sedona. It's a little further north in the mountains. It's an old mining town and heavily, heavily haunted. Ah, well, hopefully you'll uh, capture some interesting uh, EVPs. Are you taking the uh, Frank's box with you? I don't have a ghost box with me, but uh, we'll be doing some old-style investigation. Uh, Eyewitness, cameras, digital recorders. All right. Well, good luck. Good luck with that, and I, uh, I look forward to hearing the results. I wanted to talk to you about uh, this Virginia woman uh, down in Bedford County, Virginia, who called the uh, the sheriff's office or, uh, or a dispatcher, claiming she saw Bigfoot uh, with a baby along uh, some lonely country uh, route, uh, driving up Route Forty Three, I believe it was. Uh, what What do you make of this story? It's quite interesting uh, because of the, the detail. And uh, she saw this Bigfoot carrying a baby, and the baby looked exactly like Chewbacca, she said, from Star Wars, and it looked directly at her. Now, there have been other reports of what appeared to be female uh, Bigfoot carrying infants or having some sort of a juvenile in tow. And there have been quite a few sightings in Virginia. I did check into this one to see what kind of activity had been reported in the surrounding area. And it doesn't seem to be like one of the hot zones that gets a lot of reports, but there have been other Bigfoot reports in the area. So as you can imagine, this uh, case sets off a big controversy uh, right away in terms of is it authentic or was she imagining things. Uh, It got a lot of attention because she called it into the sheriff's office. And she waited a while to call it in. And uh, so people criticized her for that, that this was an indication it wasn't a real uh, sighting. It might be a hoax. But on the other hand, having dealt with eyewitnesses for so many years, uh, many people will hesitate before they report anything because they're concerned that other people will think they're crazy. Sure. And that's exactly what she said. She said, you know, this, you know you're going to think I'm crazy. This is real. So she had a very good visual sighting. Uh, Many sightings are very vague. They're seen at a distance, whatever it is, mysterious creature or Bigfoot. Uh, They're vague. People have a hard time interpreting what they've seen. She was dead on. She knew what she saw. This was close up. And this was was late at night, 11.40 p.m. Uh, It happened last month, uh, September 9th. 
And she said she caught this thing in her headlights, this uh, female carrying the, uh, well, she assumed it was a female Bigfoot carrying a, a baby. Walked, I guess it crossed the highway uh, or Route 43 in front of her, right? It did. And, you know, that's very peculiar in itself, um, not in a doubtful way. But this is how people often encounter unknown creatures, including Bigfoot. They're out driving late at night on lonely roads, and something crosses the road in front of them. Uh, this happens over and over again. They see it in the headlights. Now, she went back to the area and found footprints. And this is what makes the case even more interesting, because she found these footprints where she saw these two creatures. And she said the uh, footprints were so big that she could put two of her own feet in one of those prints. Hmm. And uh, when she called this into the dispatcher a couple days later, they they sent someone out to investigate the county sheriff's office. Well, uh, they didn't quite know how to uh, to take it. You know, the the dispatchers, uh, you know, he says like what, uh, and um, there's an immediate assumption that you know it might have been mistaken for bears. Uh, they do send people out to look around, and what are they going to find? These are one-off sightings a lot. So it's not like Bigfoot is sitting around waiting for the sheriff to show up and validate a sighting. Right. Uh, one, of, one of the keys will be, have other people seen uh, these sorts of creatures in the same location? Because there seems to be certain hot zone areas and tracks, energy tracks, that uh, people have sightings over and over again. Uh, now, in Bedford County, Virginia, there, uh, like I mentioned, there uh, doesn't seem to be any hot zone activity, uh, but people have seen Bigfoot uh, in, in that particular county. Uh, I have consulted some other Bigfoot researchers uh, on this case in terms of how they're evaluating it. Everybody's taking a wait and see. Um, uh, one fellow told me that uh, he said, well, you know, initial reports often... Uh, are proven to be unreliable in the long run. We'll just have to see. We'll have to wait for more information to come out. And so far, nothing more has come out about it. Well, it's too bad she didn't have the presence of mind maybe to call the local chapter of the the Bigfoot uh, uh, field uh, researcher group so that they could go out and you know make some plaster casts or whatever. But as you say, we'll have to uh, watch this story with interest as it develops, if it develops. Uh, we'll take a time out and uh, we'll come back and talk about speed demons, tales of possessed cars with our paranormal investigator researcher, uh, Rosemary Ellen Geiler. The website is visionaryliving.com. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett and we'll be back in just a moment. Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, is with us as she joins us uh, at this time of the month, every month, for our Paranormal News Roundup. And um, before we get on to speed demons and tales of possessed cars, I know you're down in uh, Arizona and you're uh, getting ready to investigate a, uh, a ghost town. Uh, but w- is, this, is this going to be, uh, this research turning up in a, a new book anytime soon? What are you working on these days, Rosemary? Well, I'm always working on multiple projects. And uh, one of the things that, that um, I've been spending a great deal of time on is my concept of the interdimensional Earth, the fact that we share the planet with other beings that we encounter in these uh, uh, sightings uh, like we just talked about with the Bigfoot, and that these are entities and beings who share the planet with us. And as our consciousness changes, uh, we are going to have more and more encounters. 
so uh, there are certain hot spots all over the place. And where I'm going later this week, Jerome, Arizona, an old mining town, uh, is one of them where people have a lot of different kinds of encounters. There's residual ghost activity, but there's also UFO activity, mysterious creature activity. And um, we find these things in kind of hot pockets. Well, I think that the Earth of the future is going to be very different, and it's going to be uh, more like um, the scene from the Star Wars and, and the famous bar scene where there are entities from all over the universe uh, gathered together in the bar. And uh, we're going to be living on a planet that's not us uh, alone at the top of the uh, sentient food chain. Uh, we're going to be finding ourselves with Uh, other sentient and very powerful neighbors that um, we'll be increasingly dealing with. Oh, now that's interesting. So are you, are you, this, okay, so does that, does that, uh, this is fascinating and we will get to the speed demons in a moment, but I can't just leave that hanging. So is the idea here that the, I guess the resonant frequency here on earth uh, is going to change. And so that these interdimensionals, whether we're talking about Bigfoot or maybe even Chubacabra, as I was talking last week with Nick Redfern, uh, or you know, all these things that we, we sort of associate with places like the Skinwalker's Ranch, they will become manifest and be visible to everyone as, this, as the level of vibration changes. This is what I believe is taking place now. We, we are already in this transition. And not only that, this is a marriage of the paranormal and the mystical, because mystics have talked about this sort of thing for decades. Uh, about how consciousness is changing to the point where the body's going to change, but also our awareness of everything else around us is changing. So it's not a new concept by any means, but it's just being reinterpreted in new ways. And uh, paranormal research feeds directly into that because it is part of this bigger picture. We've always compartmentalized these things, that they are outside of ordinary reality. Well, our ordinary reality in the future is going to be what we call extraordinary reality now. All right. Uh, Let's move on and talk about uh, possessed cars. Uh, And, you know, my my only experience in this realm has to do with that uh, that John Carpenter movie uh, that came out maybe 30 years ago. Uh, I uh, I can't even remember the name of that movie. Christine, thank you, Ian, in the other room, my oh, producer. Christine, yes. yes. Yes, the haunt of the Stephen King story. Right. Now, I just thought that was kind of, a, you know, came out of the uh, the creative mind of Mr. King. But there's actually quite a long history going back to, I mean, as soon as companies started shifting production from bicycles to cars, uh, after the, or even before the, the First World War, this stuff started happening, possessed cars. Tell me about it. Uh a very long history and related to other haunted objects as well. And when you think about it, the car is so important uh, today. And as a symbol, it, it symbolizes the ego. It's how we get around the world. We're, you know, we're so dependent upon them. So a car is just like any other object can acquire bad energy. They can acquire spirit attachments. And there are so many famous cases of cars that have been involved in horrific accidents and crimes that uh, they then literally become uh, cursed with energy that goes into their parts. And then bad things happen to owners who acquire the cars or even uh, if the cars are dissembled for parts, 
when you acquire the parts, accidents, illness, disasters, death. Uh, this has been documented so many times, and also with airplanes as well. So uh, this is a topic that I have followed for years about how objects can acquire bad energy and spirit attachment that affect people in just a disastrous way. Uh, one of the earliest accounts goes back to uh, 1914, and there was an Austrian company that, again, started off making bicycles, I think, in the sort of the late, mid-19th century, switched over to automobiles. And one of those automobiles ended up being, uh, well, they were passengers in the car, and, of course, this was the royal, uh, a, a couple of Austria-Hungary, Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand and um, his bride. Uh, and, of course, we know how that played out. Uh, that vehicle that they were in, apparently it stalled, uh, which sort of played into the hands of the uh, the would-be assassin. And then sort of the, the, the car survived and I guess got handed down to various people, but uh, some, some of that negative energy stuck with the car. Well, it did. And at that particular time, there was a whole lot of attention going on in Europe that war was going to explode at some point. And the assassination of uh, the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife Sophie was the last straw. It really triggered the, the whole conflict. But they were riding in this luxury car, uh, which was called a, uh, I believe it was called a double phaeton. And the company was that made it was the Graf and Stift uh, Company. Right. And um, it was open. It was a big uh, car that was open. They were riding in the street. Uh, the car stalled, as cars did often back then. It stalls in front of a cafe where there's this anarchist inside the cafe, and he sees the car stalled, and he'd probably already been contemplating something like, you know, assassination, that this is uh, the solution to everybody's problems is to get rid of these two. Uh, and he runs out with a gun and kills them both. Uh, I do want to mention that this particular case also has an unusual dream attached to it because there was a, uh, a, a political figure who was associated with uh, the Archduke who on the night before the assassination had an intense lucid dream in which he saw the assassination playing out, but he saw two gunmen, not just one. Ah. And the dream involved also a letter that the Archduke Ferdinand wrote to him, and in the dream he opens it, and the letter says, I regret to inform you of my, uh, my death or my assassination, and it's signed by the Archduke. So this fellow tries to uh, warn the Archduke that he should not be out in an open car. Uh, he's going to be assassinated. He, he never gets word to the Archduke, but this is documented in uh, dream literature. So we have this cursed car then, that it, no matter who owns it, um, misfortune comes to them, and over a course of time, 13 people die in horrible, tragic accidents uh, after they take possession of this car. Wow. Well, the uh, the first to acquire the car was an Austrian general, and he supposedly was driven insane while driving the car. And uh, the car flipped over a number of times and killed people, uh, crushing them to death. Uh, the insanity was, was particularly odd. There was uh, another fellow who um, uh, got it and lost an arm in an accident. 
people didn't start to think the car was cursed, but they didn't believe it, but they would acquire it to kind of disprove that anything was wrong with it, and then they would have problems. Uh, very interesting that several times the car flipped over, uh, killing people. And uh, I do believe that cursed energy does go into this. So you have two violent deaths that occur in this car, and that energy of violent death is literally going into the physical parts of the car. Not to mention, uh, Rosemary, not to mention the millions of people who died in the First World War as a result of that political assassination. And that uh, you brought up a very good point because that energy feeds into it, too. So it's, it's like magnified. And all of these tragedies stopped when the car was donated to a museum. So it's when it became uh, disused and, and out, of, um, you know, out of commerce, so to speak, uh, then all of these things came to a halt. But my feeling is if that car ever came out of the museum, if someone decided to uh, acquire it and the museum would release it and they start driving it around again, these bad things would start right up again. I'm, just, I'm looking at a photo of Franz Ferdinand's uh, Graf and Stiff uh, double Fadian on display in the uh, the War Museum in Vienna. It's been there since 1926, beautifully restored. It's a be- it almost looks like something from the Franklin Mint collection you used to see on TV. Uh, have, uh, you must get over there if you haven't been already and, and, and check this thing out, or would you want to? I would want to, yes. Uh, I have not seen this car in person, and uh, I've, of course, read about it because it's a very famous case. Yeah. Uh, but I would like to see it. Just a few minutes uh, yet uh, left, uh, Rosemary. Uh, let me mention again the website, visionaryliving.com. And uh, um, most, if not all, of Rosemary's uh, uh, voluminous work is, is there, all her books and so forth, visionaryliving.com. Uh, perhaps the best-known uh, supposed cursed car, of course, belongs. It was a, a Porsche 550 Spider, and that was owned by the American actor James Dean. Uh, which had been christened the Little Bastard, a nickname, I guess, that was uh, sort of emblazoned on the side of the vehicle back in the 1950s. Uh, and we know how that one ended. Uh, Dean was a bit of a speed demon and um, uh, died tragically in the Porsche 550 Spider. but the, the tragedy doesn't end there. Uh, and Dean was at the height of his career when this uh, fatality occurred in 1955. And uh, he was actually... Uh, en route to uh, some sort of car race with his mechanic. Uh, and he was speeding along curvy roads and had a head-on collision uh, where he was killed almost instantly. He was still alive when they pulled him from the wreckage, but he was pronounced dead at the hospital. His mechanic did survive. Uh, he had a broken jaw and, and uh, some other injuries. But um, the car, of course, then became uh, the object of fascination of collectors. And uh, there were bizarre accidents, like um, uh, um, there was a case where somebody who, uh, uh, the guy who was taking the car to a location, uh, was uh, in an accident. He was thrown from his truck. Uh, He was alive when he hit the pavement, and somehow, in some strange way, uh, the little bastard managed to roll off and crush him to death. And uh, there were just very bizarre accidents like that where uh, people had serious injuries uh, after owning or driving the car. 
Uh, in some cases, uh, Rosemary, they just some cases they they would uh, it wasn't even the car itself except the engine. They took the engine, put it in another car, and then that car would get into an accident. Um, we are sadly out of time, Rosemary. I wish we uh, we had more, but um, uh, listen, good luck on that investigation in the ghost town. Can't wait to hear more about that. Well, thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure talking with you. All right, Rosemary. Be well. Visionaryliving.com. Back next week with a brand new program. My thanks to Ian Roberts and Albert Vinzel. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.